This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode number 12. Today, my guest is Michael Wagner. We'll be talking about his book, No Other Option, Self-Determination for Alberta. Michael Wagner, welcome to the Darcy Drill Podcast. How are things? Oh, thanks for having me, Darcy. Uh, things are going reasonably well. Thank you. You know, libertarians are very sympathetic to the ideas of secession or nullification like the American system offers, sometimes for different reasons than separatists, but generally we look at independence movements favorably. Uh, I wanted to have you on the show because the subject of Alberta independence has really been back in full force over the last four or five years. And you are, to my knowledge, uh, the only person who has written a book on the subject, or multiple books for that matter. Uh, but before we get into your books, uh, tell the listeners a bit about yourself and what you do. Okay, well, I, I work at a number of part-time jobs, basically. I work for a publishing company, I work for a homeschooling organization, and I do freelance writing on the side. You know, I'm a columnist for the Western Standard, and I, I write books in my free time, that's what I consider, I guess, part of my freelance writing. And uh, I, I've got a, I've, you know, I spent 10 years at uh, University of Calgary and University of Alberta combined. So I've got uh, a few degrees in, in political science. So I've been intensely interested in political science, especially in Alberta politics for much of my life. But it, in graduate school, actually, my expertise was more in education policy. And so I had a lot of I was familiar with a lot of libertarian uh, literature from that time because that's the position I took when it came to education is it's up to the people, individuals and families to decide for themselves. And so uh, my graduate school research is actually defending private education and home education uh, to a large degree against the public education establishment. So that was kind of the, the my original field. But but right back from when I was a teenager, that's when I first got uh, involved in politics myself. And that was in the early 80s with the Alberta separatist movement. Uh, you know, as a kid, I guess I was interested in politics younger than most people were as a kid. You know, me and my friends would talk about international politics mostly, you know, the Cold War and things like that. And I wasn't involved, interested in domestic politics until basically the National Energy Program came along. And I was just a teenager, but it got me really angry, just like it got a lot of the Albertans angry. So at 15, I joined my first uh, political organization. It was a, a separatist organization. And then at 16, I joined my first political party, which was the Alberta Western Canada concept. They just elected uh, at that time a uh, 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 a candidate in a by-election in Olds Didsbury was the first time Western Separatist was elected in Western Canada. And I was just really fired up about that. And it, it meant a lot to me. And that was my kind of baptism of fire in terms of political things. And, uh, you know, this uh, uh, interest in, in Alberta separatism died off after the, toward the end of the 1980s, especially because of the rise of the Reform Party. Um, the Reform Party absorbed that kind of sentiment. And it, it basically it died off until, well, with little uprisings here and there, but mostly it died off until um, 2015 when Justin Trudeau was elected. But because of but because of my interest in separatism, like I had that lifelong interest in a sense. I, in in 2019, I came up with my first book on Alberta separatism. Like when I was doing research on other topics at university in particular, I would come across materials, you know, from the early 80s on the separatist movement. I think, boy, someone should write a book on this. There's so much material, and, and no one did write a book on it. And then I had some friends uh, kind of encourage me that way, and I knew the material was there. And because it was it meant so much to me myself, I thought, well, you know, if there's going to be a book on Alberta separatism, the history of it, if I write it, I'll write it from 
a sympathetic perspective because I was part of it. I knew what it was about. I knew what the real motivations were. And so I could write it from that perspective because if a, you know, if a leftist had written a book on, about the Alberta Separatist Movement, they would have given it a completely different spin, you know, something not realistic from my perspective. So if I could write it, I'd write it from the perspective of those of us who were involved and, you know, what we were interested in what we wanted to achieve. And so that was how my first book came out about, about that. The funny thing was, well, not really funny, but <laughs> there was no market for the book when it came out. It was shortly afterwards, the publisher just dropped it and withdrew it altogether because <laughs> there was no sales for it. And it wasn't until 2015 with Justin Trudeau coming along and I said to the publisher, you know, this is going to be of interest to people now, now that Justin Trudeau's in power. And so he brought it back into circulation in 2015 after Justin Trudeau's election. So I have to uh, credit Justin Trudeau for reviving that book for me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah. I don't know. I, have I gotten off track here? I can't remember where you were. At. You, I guess you asked uh, me to talk about myself, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. T- tell me about yourself, and, and I guess the other thing is you've been doing lots of uh, public speaking lately. So you've been invited to a lot of these kind of pro-independence things and different political rallies. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Like well, it's, it's kind of funny because of that first book. Um, as as interest grew in the separatist movement in the last few years, as you mentioned, because of Justin Trudeau, people started saying, well, you've got to update your book. You've got to update your book. And I thought, well, no, instead of updating it, I'll just do a new one because I'd come across a lot of uh, material in the meantime. And the purpose of the se- – so I did write a second book, and the purpose of the second book was actually to advocate for independence. The first one is like a history of the independence movement, and the second was an advocacy book. So because of that book, um, some organizations – you know, there's been new organizations created to um, advance Alberta independence, and some of them started inviting me to speak. Um, the one I've spoken for most is the Alberta Prosperity Project, headed up by uh, Dr. Dennis Modry. And so I've, I've spoken a number of times uh, for them. And uh, the the, uh, the audiences are, you know, are, are usually quite sizable. I think the smallest one I've spoken to has been maybe 200 people. I mean, they're, they're not there for me. They're there because uh, Dr. Modry is a big draw. And sometimes Chris Scott, you know, from the Whistle Stop campaign, he's a big draw. And there's other some other people too, like uh, Jeff Rath, a lawyer. Anyway, there's some very uh, and Ty Northcott from the Rodeo guy. So there's a lot of people. So anyway, they because of these top line people, there's lots. The the audience has come out, and I just happened to be given those audiences to speak to about Alberta independence. And so there's been a number of those meetings. APP is holding meetings, I think, every weekend for the last few months, and they're not stopping. I, it's quite a tremendous, tremendous. Uh, uh, momentum that they have so i've had the opportunity to speak at those and to distribute my books so yeah that's been really exciting because the, the audiences are very interested and very excited yeah yeah right on uh just as a side note i was actually at uh, the whistle stop that day that they went and and shut them down uh yeah i left shortly before it looked like nothing was going to happen the police had come in there and talked with them and everybody was friendly and I thought, oh, this is great. They're just going to let them operate. And then about an hour later, I was driving back to Calgary and I got a call from, uh, well, Dave Naylor, actually, at the Western Standard, wondering if I was still there. And I guess he had found out that in the time that I had left, they had shut the place down. So, But uh, yeah, but anyway, um, so your book from 2009, Alberta Separatism Then and Now, I guess I would like uh, some background on that book. I know you touched on it briefly, but if you can give us some background before we get into your newer one, and just tell us about uh, the inspiration and what that book's purpose was or is. Yeah, like the, the, the basic purpose of it is to explain the rise 
of the Alberta separatist movement from a separatist perspective. And so it goes back, uh, the first separatist organizing began after Pierre Trudeau became prime minister. You know, before Pierre Trudeau was prime minister, you can find the occasional mention of the possibility of Western independence here and there. And in fact, there was a, an MLA in the uh, early 1900s, I think it was 1915, wrote a book uh, called Canada and its Colonies. And he actually advocated for Alberta uh, to separate from Canada. But his he, he wasn't looking for actual for Alberta to exist on its own. He just wanted to separate from Canada to renegotiate uh, terms for entry. So so that, that book, you know, came out, like, I think it was about 1915. But it, it wasn't a movement. There was no movement. You know, there was no political organizing. But occasionally you hear this kind of thing. But, but once Pierre Trudeau becomes prime minister, then some organizations begin to form and people really start, like, writing about it and talking about it. So uh, the first organizations uh, began like in the early 70s. And the first real significant organization was the Independent Alberta Association. I think that was formed in 1974. And it was oil men and professionals. Like there were significant people in there. And they they hired academics to do, uh, you know, academic studies on different aspects of Alberta independence. The problem was there, there wasn't a lot of support for independence back then. It was a relatively small group, a few hundred people. But they got some significant work done, you know, during that time. They ended up fading away in the late 70s. And, um, but, you know, the, the real turning point for Alberta independence was the 1980 federal election fall followed by the National Energy Program because, you know, people looked to the Progressive Conservative Party federally and to some degree provincially as, as the way of defending Alberta. Of course, Peter Lahu was premier and he was very outspoken in favor of Alberta's interests and he fought Trudeau all throughout the 70s. So, and he, he that's one of the reasons he got so much support in so many majority governments is, you know, he was our guy fighting Trudeau. And then, uh, you know, there was a, a federal election in 1979 where Joe Clark was elected briefly in a minority government. His government fell. And at that 1980 federal election, the Liberals campaigned against Alberta. Like it was it was a very distinct uh, uh, election campaign because, you know, generally speaking, in national elections, federal leaders want to smooth over regional differences. Like any large country has regional differences. And, and the way to preserve national unity is to smooth over these differences and try and reconcile. But in 1980, Trudeau decided to take a exploit regional differences instead of smooth them over and say, we've got to put that Alberta in its place and let, you know, vote for me and we'll put Alberta in its place. So when he was elected after that, uh, that's when separatist organizations began to form. And it was a few months later when he introduced the National Energy Program. And that's when things really took off. And, and, and the biggest separatist meetings in Alberta history took took off were, were, were held so, sorry shortly after the National Energy Program was brought in. Um, anyway, the, the book describes this, the kind of the evolution of the movement and how it really took off in the early 80s. And, um, you know, we got that Western Canada concept guy elected in a, in a by-election and the party looked strong. But the problem was, and, it, you know, uh, there's always been divisions in the independence movement and, it, and it, it really undermined the movement then. And some of those same tendencies are existing right now. Um, and I, I think it's just a human nature kind of thing. But but anyway, it's, it's one of the patterns. And people who've read that book have said to me, this is what we're experiencing right now, like in terms of these divisions in the different groups and stuff, right? So, <laughs> so it's a perennial problem. But um so, so then it carries on through the 80s um, and how the movement dissipated a bit and then began to revive because of under Mulroney, you know, there was that CF-18 fighter maintenance contract that was awarded to Montreal, even though Winnipeg had won the contract. And and so the movement began to get, came, come back. But but Preston Manning, that's when he came in with the Reform Party and he actually saw the energy of the separatist movement. But he thought he could take that energy and put it into kind of a, a way of reforming Canada rather than separating Alberta from Canada. And yet it was a good idea in its own way. And it, it was so good, in fact, that it absorbed, you know, it did absorb the independence movement. In fact, 
the leader of the uh, Western Canada concept in the mid 80s was a guy named Jack Ramsey, and he ended up becoming a Reform Party member of Parliament from Camrose. So they, you know, that's how much that's how much they absorbed the the separatist movement. Is people did see that Preston Manning had it, what seemed to be a really good idea that let's get the West in. Like right, the motto of the Reform Party was the West wants in. Seemed like a good idea, and they tried really hard. But and I think that you know they were well meaning, they worked hard, they did everything. But I use the Reform Party as as my ultimate argument as to why Alberta should become independent because. We've tried to get the West in, and Preston demanding the Reform Party, if they couldn't do it, there's no one around right now that can. So if Preston if Pres Manning can't do it, then that's, it's their, our only option is to get out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which leads us right into your uh, newer book, which came out in 2021, and it's called No Other Option, Self-Determination for Alberta. Um, I'd like to go through a few different sections of that book. I think everyone listening to this already understands the incredible economic restraints imposed on Alberta by Ottawa. Uh, we can touch on that uh, briefly too, but um, I, I think some of your other arguments are far more original, uh, like in Chapter 4, where, you're, where you make the case for Alberta being culturally different than the rest of the country and Central Canada in particular. Uh, can you explain your position in that chapter? Yeah, like it's it's really based, I really got that idea from uh, an article by Professor Barry Cooper from the University of Calgary. I think it was called Western Regional Identity or something like that. But he talks about, um, you know, Canadian identity and what is the concept of Canadian identity. And in, in English-speaking Canada, at least, it arises out of um, the concept of Canadian identity in Southern Ontario, the loyalist uh, mentality. Um, when the Loyalists, of course, the first major English-speaking settlement into Canada was were the Loyalists, especially into southern Ontario. And they developed what he calls a garrison mentality, um, where they defend themselves, you know, against the Americans or whatever. But this was the Canadian identity as they saw it. But uh, in, in Western Canada, we didn't have, we didn't get those same kind of ideas. Like Western Canada, the settlement came so much later in kind of a mass wave of people from Europe and especially Eastern Europe. And those people, the way they uh, kind of, well, the way their Canadian identity was ingrained was in a completely different experience than the kind of experience that the people of Southern Ontario had. So when they hear, when they would hear what Canadian identity is supposed to be, this garrison mentality, it did not relate to them at all. And it did not include them. And so it was the idea was that Western Canadians were not part of Canadian identity. It's like we're we're not really Canadians in a sense in this kind of identity sense. And it that's uh we have a different sort of identity. And, and from there, you know, the the um the kind of identity we have here on the prairies, which originated with, you know, the pioneers, the settlers, the agricultural economy, the the self-reliance and things like that. The the way we thought about Canada and what Canada means to us was different from what developed in Southern Ontario, and in that sense, it made a separate, a, a different kind of identity from Southern Ontario. And then, and then also, I, I guess another, I'm kind of moving forward a bit with this, but one of the big factors that makes Alberta different from Western Canada is American immigration. Like Alberta was the last part of North America, the last major part to be settled. You know, the American uh, West got settled first, and then there was still some room on the prairies. And so a lot of those American settlers then came north to get the land. Like uh, first, you know, Manitoba was settled first, then kind of gradually across Saskatchewan into Alberta. That's a generalization, but it is kind of true. And so a large number of Americans came in. So in the early 1900s, like 100 years ago, approximately 20% of Alberta's population was American born. So Alberta had by far the, the most American influence of any Canadian province. And that 
you know, impacted and really put its image on Alberta's politics in terms of the kind of American populism and and other kind of American-based ideologies came into Alberta and were, were very influential right from the early part of this province. And that kind of set this province in a particular direction ideologically that the other provinces didn't have. And it kind of it, it's, has continued on. And so when people talk about Alberta being a more conservative province than um, other parts of the country, that is one of the major reasons is that early American influence. Then actually, too, if I can... To kind of to build on that a bit, once oil was discovered in the late 1940s, uh, a lot of the expertise uh, that we needed for developing the oil was again in the United States, particularly in the western states like Texas and Oklahoma that already had developed oil industries. So a lot of those guys, at least executives, came up and became the leading executives and leaders of the oil industry in Alberta as well. And they already had, you know, conservative views too. So this was like a, a kind of like a second wave, not as big of a wave, but it was an influential business wave of American conservative influence into into Alberta. Anyway, there's there's other aspects too, but these are kind of the the bigger ones that kind of directed Alberta or kind of formed Alberta's politics in a way different from the rest of Canada and in a more conservative um, uh, direction than the rest of Canada. And it's kind of it still carries on to some degree within our political culture that makes us different from from Eastern Canada. I mean, especially when you look at our federal voting results, you know, Alberta is almost usually solid conservative, maybe one or two liberals and NDPs, but it's been that way for generations, like not just in the last few years, but for generations, we've been different that way. Uh, whereas other provinces tend to have more variation. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, I, I found that very interesting. Um, in chapter five, you make the case that the conservative party of Canada, uh, does not, and probably never will offer a solution to Alberta's problems within Confederation. Uh, can you expand on that? Sure. I mean, the Conservative Party, the Federal Conservative Party is better for Alberta than the Liberals or, or the NDP, but they won't can't fundamentally solve the problem because in Canada's political system, in order for a party to win election at the federal level, they have to win a lot of support in Ontario and Quebec. They have to. That's where the majority of the voters are in Ontario and Quebec. So every federal political party has the incentive to please Ontario and Quebec above all other provinces as a way of getting elected. And this is why we had the problem. Like when Brian Mulroney was elected in 1984, many Albertans thought, okay, we're going to be okay now. Trudeau's gone. Liberals are gone. We're going to be okay. But And all of Alberta's MPs at that time were part of the Progressive Conservative Party. They were part of Mulroney's government. But again, when that CF-18 issue came up and there's a clear uh, conflict between East and West and where the West was clearly in the right on that, still uh, conservative government gave um, the contract to Montreal. Now, this is a slightly different party. That was a progressive conservative party. And now we have the conservative party. But the incentive is still there. And even if like, let's take a best case scenario. Let's say up here, Polyev, someone like him gets becomes leader of the conservative party, becomes prime minister. We'll get like a reprieve. Alberta will get a reprieve, will get better policies, but then he's going to eventually, he's, they're, they're not going to be in power forever. They're going to eventually lose again to the Liberals and we'll be back where we were before. So the best that the Conservatives can offer us are a temporary reprieve. So I see the Conservative Party of Canada as kind of like it's a Band-Aid solution, temporary solution, but it's not a permanent solution because we're just going to be in these same cycles of federal government against Alberta, uh, you know, if we if we try to rely on the Conservative Party. So so they're not a permanent solution. They're, they're better than the Liberals, for sure they are. And Alberta gets a better deal with them, but they can't solve our problem, our permanent solution. They can't give us a permanent solution. Yeah, yeah, right. I, I completely agree with you there. Um, now, tell us about the legal pathways to an independent Alberta. I know, again, you have a chapter, I forget which one it is in your book, but there is a chapter in your book devoted to this, kind of the mechanics of how we make this happen. Can you go through that? 
Yeah, uh, the key thing is is a Supreme Court reference decision in 1998. Now, the background to that, of course, is um, Quebec's uh, independence referendums. They had a referendum in 1980, and of course, it failed. Uh, they, it was only 41% in favor of independence. But then there was a referendum in 1995, and that barely failed. It was like uh, the pro-independence side got 49.5% or something like that. It really looked like Quebec might separate at that time. But the legality of Quebec independence you know, was really up in the air. What would happen if Quebec voted in favor of independence? There was just no constitutional law or precedent for this. So the federal government set, uh, uh, sent a reference case to the Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court, could Quebec unilaterally secede from Canada according to Canadian constitutional law and according to international law? And the Supreme Court gave partly the decision that the federal government wanted. Like the federal government wanted them to rule that it was not legal to unilaterally secede. And, and sure enough, the Supreme Court said, Quebec cannot unilaterally secede from Canada. And that was what the federal government wanted. However, the Supreme Court also said, but if Quebec held a refer an independence referendum, referendum with a clear question, a clear question on independence, and a clear majority of people voted in favor of it, then the federal government would have an obligation to negotiate Quebec's independence. So Quebec couldn't unilaterally declare independence, but if they had a clear question and a clear majority voted in favor, then their negotiations would have to begin. Now, that, that the clear question thing... You know, it was important because uh, if you look back on, I can't remember what the questions were in 1980 and 1995, but they were not clear questions. <laughs> you know, people could read them and be left scratching their heads. I mean, there was a general conception of what it meant. But but again, like it, people could technically vote for it and not really realize what the implications were. So, so the idea of having a clear question, a clear majority, those things, those are really good criteria, actually. Like there's a lot of things that the Supreme Court writes that I think is is bad. But that actually, that decision is actually has a lot of wisdom in it. And those two criteria are actually really smart criteria. Now, the, the, the federal government then as a result of that in 2000 passed the Clarity Act to put the bones on some of the constitutional law. And, and the Clarity Act, it's pretty strict, and there's actually a number of Quebec academics who say that the Clarity Act is much more stringent than the secession reference case allows. And so if the federal government, you know, was to use the Clarity Act as a way of obstructing uh, independence of a province after a successful referendum under the conditions of the secession reference case, uh, like what the, the scholars believe that those provinces could still move forward with independence because the purpose of the secession reference case says that the federal government has to negotiate in good faith. Like it can't be a thing that the federal government decides, well, we don't like that decision. We're just going to like obstruct and, and delay and things like that. The Supreme Court says it has to be in good faith. So, so yeah. So if the Clarity Act is too strict, that won't necessarily prohibit the province from becoming independent. So then I guess what we're looking at first a referendum and then negotiation and and who knows what any of that would actually look like or you know the possibility of it coming to pass but um okay so i get i'll I'll, well, I'll ask you to maybe speculate a bit on this next thing i want to ask you i don't think you mentioned it in your book but uh you know as much as libertarians are sympathetic to the idea of secession I think there are a few things that stick out to be concerned about. Um, the main one being that Alberta's path to independence is predetermined by its place in a federalist system, like what we just talked about in the referendum and and negotiation and everything else. And um, what would an Alberta federation look like? I mean, has this ever been discussed, or are we looking at some sort of unitary unitary form of state government in an independent Alberta? 
Yeah, like I, I can only speculate, like you mentioned, but there, there, there are different ideas. I mean, part of it would depend on if Alberta becomes just that's the only part that becomes independent. If Alberta is the only province that becomes independent, I think it'd be unitary in the sense of how the government works now. But the hope is for many of us that the other Western provinces will eventually come along as well. Because, you know, if we had all four Western provinces, that unit is has much more economic and political advantages than Alberta on its own. But but we one province it has to be done province by province, and Alberta has to be the first one to go. But the more provinces we had together, the better the the more viable it is. Um, and so I, I if if let's say Saskatchewan came second, I think we would have quite still a federal kind of system. I don't think Alberta and Saskatchewan would become a unitary system. I don't think people in either province would be interested in that. We could still have a federal system, uh, a better federal system where the federal government really only handles, you know, military, foreign affairs, that kind of thing. And the local people could handle their provincial affairs, you know, cultural, medical, all those kind of things. So my my perspective would be that if we got these other provinces involved, it would be a very decentralized form. I mean. We don't want to escape from a centralized federation only to form another centralized federation. It wouldn't make sense. So it, so it, it would be better to have these provinces on board, but with a truly decentralized federation. But but Alberta is the only province that's really had strong support historically. And, and Alberta would have to go first. And, and Alberta might end up being on its own. It's hard to say. And so we have to be prepared to, that, to live with that. But I do think Alberta would maintain kind of its current system although you know there are people who speculate about what you know nobody has determined what the form of government exactly what it would be i mean a lot of there's a lot of republicans in the movement you know who talk about having an alberta republic um but but the, but i mean we can't really say decide what the form of government would be before we become independent um I mean, we, first we'd have to become independent and then we'd have to have the people like it'd have to be some kind of you know i don't know citizens um convention or something like that would have to be uh, there have to be a lot of buy-in from everybody to move forward on what kind of government we'd have i suspect it'd be something like not drastically different from what we do have because people are used to certain patterns of doing things and it makes sense to stick with the patterns that we already know rather than to try something drastically different and when you know once you have independence things can change over time people can bring proposals for different you know amendments and stuff like that but i i think it would be essentially similar to what we have now at least in the initial years of moving forward that's my speculation <laughs> yeah well and, and i only ask because i i don't know and i was i was just wondering if there was any uh you know if the movement itself had had an idea in place, like if everyone had sort of agreed on something, and and, and partly because if we're looking at it from a real, uh, say like a Rothbardian libertarian sort of point of view, it it brings to mind the question of what some place like uh, Fort McMurray, if when they want to separate from an overbearing government in in a place like Calgary, I mean, you know, what would that look like in an independent Alberta, right? And which brings us back again to, um, you know, the reason Alberta, the possibility of this happening is the that federalist system or or the confederation, whatever you want to call it. Um, so let's see what what haven't I have, what haven't we touched on that you think is important to to review before before the end of our conversation here um i think you you've done pretty good in, in covering it actually I, I i didn't come with specific uh agenda except to promote my books so. yeah well okay then then, <laughs> then let's do this there is i do have one more book of yours uh called leaving god behind could you tell us a bit about that one before before we end it 
Yeah, well, actually, um, that one is a critique of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I mean, we're, we're taught today, oh, the Charter, that's the source of our freedoms. We have our freedoms because of, you know, Pierre Trudeau giving us this Charter and things like that. And and people are, are surprised when they don't get the freedoms that uh, the Charter seems to protect. But, I mean, if you go back, I, like what I did was I, I wanted to look at the history of – of Trudeau's proposals for the for the charter and the criticisms that were brought to it, I think it fundamentally changed Canada, and I think for the most part the change was in a negative direction. Now the the book is from a specifically Christian perspective, um, and so you, you know your readers might want to know that. In, uh, but um, but there's a see there's a lot of critiques during the, Trudeau. Trudeau originally proposed the charter when he was a minister of justice, and he actually had a the Justice Department actually pro- published his proposal as a little book. He he looked at the American system and thought the American system was better for protecting rights and freedoms. But you know when you compare the United States and Canada over the over the evolutions of our histories, Canadians' rights and freedoms have been just as well protected as the Americans. Like you might say, well, the American Bill of Rights is good and it has lots of good things, but you have to remember the Bill of Rights was in power during the time of slavery too. So the Americans have these very significant. I mean, there's there's a lot of good things about the Bill of Rights. There's a lot of good things about American history and freedom and stuff, but they do have some really big setbacks, and slavery is one of the biggest ones. Also, some of the, also some of the, you know, the Jim Crow laws and things like that. So just having a written Bill of Rights does not guarantee a better system of rights protection. I mean, it can help. It can in some circumstances, but, but it doesn't guarantee that. But Trudeau wanted Canada's system to be more like the American system where we had a Bill of Rights that would be adjudicated by the Supreme Court. And it, like especially in in the United States, beginning in the mid-20th century, the U.S. Supreme Court kind of it changed its perspective a bit and became much more involved in political decision-making and changing the United States. Um, and, and from a Christian perspective, one of the big uh, changes was the th- was throwing out Bible reading and prayer in the 1960s. Anyway, this kind of social engineering, uh, if I can call it that, was something that Trudeau looked at and was hoping to bring into Canada because under Canada's system, we had parliamentary supremacy and people could – you know, these kind of issues could not be settled by the courts. The courts were not um, given the, the legal authority to do that. So he wanted these kind of changes. And during the 1970s, you know, there were hearings about uh, uh, Trudeau's proposals. And there'd be major law professors and political scientists saying, you know, if we adopt what Trudeau is proposing, it's going to fundamentally change our system. And we're going to be transferring these political issues to the Supreme Court. You know, they were saying that outright. And then that's why that's why a lot of people were opposed to it in that time. But but from but it's a, but it's an easy sell. The charter is an easy sell because the politicians just had to say, well, you have rights and freedoms, but don't you want your rights and freedoms protected by the Constitution? And everybody's going to go, yeah. Like from an abstract perspective, that just makes sense. It just makes sense to have the Constitution protect your rights and freedoms. But it, it did more than that. It changed fundamentally Canada's system. And actually, uh, when. Um, after the charter was adopted and John Crosby was the justice minister for, under Brian Mulroney, and there, see, there was a three-year waiting period. The charter was adopted in 1982, and then there's three years the governments were given to change their laws in conformity with the charter before the charter would start you know, come into force against those laws. And in 1985, when the charter was coming to effect, John Crosby said publicly, he said, we've just had a revolution. We don't realize it yet, but our whole legal system, we've had a revolution, and it's about to you know, come manifest because the charter has been implemented. Anyway, I'm saying that they, that this was not a good thing. In that book, I'm explaining, you know, why people were opposed to it, and especially the, one of the biggest leaders against it was Sterling Lyon. And Sterling, you know, he was the premier of Manitoba. He was quite conservative, and he said, "Look, we've had a system for 100 years that's worked fine. Why change something that's working fine for us? Why bring in these massive changes?" And I, I think he had a good point. Anyway, they did bring in the charter. The charter did lead to a transfer of power to the judges, you know, and um, sometimes that can be good, but not always. And in this case, I don't think it was always good. It finally changed Canada, and, I, and, and the purpose of that book is to show how. The charter f- did fundamentally change Canada, and I mean it's it's so sorry I went too long with that. <laughs> oh no no not at all not at all no not at all. Uh, uh, but anyway, okay. Well, thanks, Michael. Can you tell the listeners uh, where to find you and where to buy your books? 
Okay, well, actually, I like I have a website, but it's it's not very well developed. I think it's michaelgwagner.net. But to get my books, um, my new book on Alberta separation, uh, no other option. That's on Amazon, Amazon.ca and Amazon.com. The other two books um, are on a are sold by a small Didsbury-based mail order business called Merchant Ship. So it's the the website is just merchantship.ca, and then get my other books there. That's like yeah, mail order business. It's mostly for homeschool uh, or, uh, material. Like we're we're home educators. That's one of the ways we we're one of the fields where we strongly agree with uh, libertarianism education field. And so this is a home educating business, merchantship.ca, and my books are available there if they'd like to get it. Okay, well thanks a lot for coming on, Michael. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. That was author Michael Wagner. Make sure to check out his book, No Other Option, Self-Determination for Alberta. You can follow me on Twitter, at Darcy Giroux. And to make sure you never miss an episode of the Darcy Giroux podcast, subscribe on Substack. Substack.